Welcome to Out of the Woods, the Threat Hunting Podcast. Hello, and welcome everyone to our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. It's a live edition um, with some Discord interactivity. So, this is where we'll come to bring burning topics related to threat hunting and security stuff that maybe we all want to talk about uh, together. So just as a reminder, throughout the podcast, we'll be taking comments and questions from our Discord server. If you want to participate in that, make sure to sign up using the link in the welcome message. So just some brief introductions. I'm Scott Poley. We've got Mike Mitchell, um, as well as Lee Arkenall. Uh, if you want to check things out about us, you can check out um, us on LinkedIn. Um, and also to take note, uh, we have a cocktail recipe for every live podcast to do this way. And this week is the X gin and tonic. Um, you can find that recipe in the notes. Uh, you know, try it, give us feedback at the end. I hope, hope people like it or have fun with it um, either way. But with that, we'll kind of kick everything off with the three interesting artifacts that we've kind of put together to talk about. So um, let's jump right into that. Mike, I think you got the first one. Yep. Hey, everybody. Hope everybody's doing well. Um, so, yeah, we're going to start off today's podcast talking about the recent uh, Rackspace ransomware. So it was an article from Dark Reading, um, did a decent job of uh, walking through kind of the high level of what's happened from what we can understand. Um, they haven't done a lot of, uh, um, you know, information sharing about the the event, but on December 2nd, there was a ransomware attack against Rackspace. And so the managed cloud hosting for their exchange servers went offline. Um, you know, a lot of small to medium sized businesses were affected. Uh, they still haven't talked about the root cause of the incident. Um, but one of the interesting things is, is that it seems like they had a mitigation plan where they're pushing everybody to Microsoft 365. So what's really interesting about that is they're basically, you know, they had some sort of deal with Microsoft. They're pushing people to the competitor, trying to get them access to their email, but still haven't given them access to their, um, the full data set. So any of their old emails, they still don't have access to. So um, this is gonna be really interesting to follow, but um, I know we've covered a couple of the exchange vulnerabilities in, in some of the previous podcasts. And so, you know, First thing that comes to mind is that they were affected by the proxy nutshell um, vulnerability. So uh, I'll kind of kick it over. You know, I know um, Scott, you did a deep dive on a lot of this. So any kind of high-level things that come to mind here? Yeah. So um, one, the you know, whole thing is interesting. You know, it being cloud infrastructure, and people kind of have wondered, well, how do we manage the risk? And I know some people's approach to, hey, we're going to put things in the cloud. We don't, we no longer have to worry about that, right? It's their responsibility. If something bad happens, they'll follow through. But when it comes to the services alone, not just like certain things being lost or data being accessed, it's kind of a big deal. Um, and I think I read something where they started releasing things about it. They might've got hit with the ransomware yep. on those exchange. So, you know, that's something where if it hits the cloud where you host stuff, regardless if they are responsible for the risk, it still hurts you as a, as a business. So it's kind of a, a big thing to think about. And then it was interesting too, because I did see that they were vulnerable to the proxy not shell, but I haven't seen where people have directly just deployed ransomware with that. Um, but if you couldn't go anywhere else in the environment, it might be this interesting thing where, you know, 
a lot of people have cleaned it up and if that was accessible and i mean you could very easily do some form of ransomware with that um so uh kind of also interesting to kind of see that kind of play into the mix based on how long that's been out and what people have been doing um yeah. and then sh shoveling the business somewhere else is uh, obviously they have to do something but i don't know how you're going to get those customers back right you won't um yeah. i think they gave away free um I think it's the E5 license for those those customers, right? So if you're moving off of Rackspace into Microsoft, Microsoft infrastructure is, you know, pretty well touted, right? So it'd be hard for me to get pushed over and then be like, oh, everything's good at Rackspace and then go back to that organization. Um, this is going to be a big rift in user base for them. Um, mm -hmm. But something that you brought up is really interesting that I'd kind of like to talk about from a, um, you know, engineering policy kind of high-level vision is I know about six years ago, there was a big push to the cloud. Everybody's, let's go move to the cloud. Everything's, you know, off-prem. Um, it's it's starting to bite some people in the butt, right? So there is an immediate kind of, uh, you know, you're pushing your risk off into another entity, but what they don't provide is a, a reliable way to back up and retrieve any of that data that you're pushing out. That's when things get very expensive to have like a split uh, exchange infrastructure. Mm. We have duplication across two, and you know this is this is where I, I have a feeling it's going to happen a lot more. Where you're going to start attacking the cloud infrastructure and the services rather than going after the enterprise businesses that are, you know, using those services. Especially, so, I mean, your ransomware gets there. It's a big hit. Sorry, let you go ahead. Uh, I was going to say it's just like. Uh... You know, threat actors targeting MSSPs, right? Um, if you're going to outsource something, um, why not go for the people that hold all the keys? If you attack a company that has access to six or seven different organizations that you're interested in, that's the way you want to go in. Now, same thing here is if you're trying to attack or lock down or get a lot of payment back, why not attack a hosting service that if you lock them down, they're probably going to have to pay off because there's multiple customers saying, hey, where's my stuff? Where's my stuff? And on the same breath, I agree with you, Mike. Like everyone going from point A to the cloud was like, I, I don't agree with it because all of a sudden you're like, yeah, yeah, we're outsourcing this. We're, you know, the costs are cheaper. But I mean, but when something happens like this, all of a sudden you don't have your data. Like that's your data that you need. Why not like go to hybrid mode, right? Like outsource what you what you can that like if if it all hits the fan that's stuff we don't really need but like our critical secret sauce you hold that close to your chest that way if something does happen in the cloud you have enough data to get back up and running and then maybe limp along a little bit until that hosting company i don't know yeah, it, so it the, seems like yeah. putting anything sensitive in the cloud is a bad I idea think I think what Rackspace is, the problem they're trying to solve is those small to medium businesses that don't have an exchange admin. Because mm -hmm. managing exchange servers is a, <laughs> a hellish nightmare, right? So that's one of the things I would love to push to the cloud. But again, these kind of situations come up where I just lost access to all of my email. So if you're, you know, any type of company that utilizes email for your day-to-day -day business operations, and you can't get to your older emails either, like that's that's a, a big, big, big risk, right? Um, and so that's when you need to set up maybe backup policies, 
um, against those uh, OST files uh, for Exchange and Outlook and you know any any way that you can build some sort of uh, process around that to make sure that you're still live but yeah i would say like the three things to consider when when you have anything in the cloud is like your business continuity stuff right um then also um what what are your like your um crown jewels as far as business goes right like what needs to be you know that accessible what doesn't need to be that accessible and then kind of walking through like your you know those are tabletop scenarios right you know that you should be thinking about what if we lose this service how does it affect us and what are we going to do about it and so architecture becomes a big piece right so when you when you you know merge you know business continuity with good architecture a lot of these things can kind of be avoided or not necessarily avoided but um the impact won't be as great right um so, so. if we look at this from rackspace's point of view and we know the proxy not shell vulnerabilities out there i would assume that that was a very high priority fix for them right to patch that but we don't know how long this uh, access has been around, right? This could have been an advanced persistent threat. They could have been sitting and waiting for months and months and months. They could have had this as a zero day where they're like, who does hosted exchange? Oh, Rackspace does. Let's go attack them first before there's all this visibility out there. So from the engineering perspective at Rackspace, I'm sure there's some things. I mean, I don't understand. I don't know their infrastructure. I've never worked with them, but I'm sure from a, security perspective there are some things they could have done from a hunting perspective as an early warning sign to be like okay maybe we need to actually focus in on this this threat this visibility this you know this vulnerability that exists right um with with it i guess that would be centered around the proxy nutshell right maybe hunt for that right <laughs> so well yeah if it, like you said if they definitely if it's something they knew existed and they eventually got around to it but it existed for a you know a long enough duration where someone could have easily taken advantage of it and at least discovered it right that is a good thing to hunt for those are those are when it really becomes pertinent when you're like we can't patch this right away we've got so many customers will impact with patching this all at once you know yeah. so we're gonna have to do iterations we're gonna do whatever it takes that's when it makes sense to say okay well how do we make sure that even though we did patch it we're still good right yep yep absolutely yeah. well so, i mean I know that affected a bunch of people, but good luck to those guys. I know those engineers yeah. are not sleeping right now, so. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on to the it's next never article. A person's fault kind of thing. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Right. Newman. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's jump to the next headline. Uh, so this one, I just want to kind of point out something I find interesting, right? And I, I, I don't say as close to it as I normally like to, but I think I brought it up here before, but the Pwn to Own competition. So right now they're doing the Pwn to Own um, in Toronto, and it, I think today was the last day. But it's a great competition to kind of be aware of for a number of things. One is where people go to test their exploits against the vendors that sponsor it, and they usually have some big names. They, they test it against smart technology, phones, um, different hypervisors for virtual virtualization, um, just and then I think they did cars, you know, they do different types of categories of things. Um, but I always find it the most fascinating when you see what exploits or what things certain people take advantage of. Um, like uh, one that happened in 2021, there was a uh, Zoom, they were actually targeting Zoom and it was three different bugs someone strung together to get execution on someone's machine where they didn't have to touch anything. They didn't have to click or do anything. 
and they're really savvy exploits because they're not like the easy, hey, it's a critical exploit if I or a critical vulnerability. If I am able to exploit that, I get access. It's let me take advantage of this integer offset. Let me take advantage of then buffer overflowing. And then let me, you know, and they like chain these things together and they're usually low to medium vulnerabilities. A lot of the ones that people tend to ignore sometimes. Um, and so it really highlights the, you know, anyone that's ever done vulnerability management, it's like criticals and highs. I don't really know many people that go after the mediums or lows, except for when, hey, it's a bundled patch. We can just patch them all at once and clear the board kind of thing, right? There's never a priority or understanding there. And it's really hard to understand how some of those things work, but it's good to understand when when those tools give you like a cumulative score, <laughs> like this machine score, as far as vulnerability and risk is really high, those scenarios become more likely, right? And I think that understanding is missed by a lot of people, um, but this competition really highlights that really well. And there's some really savvy and cool things and some funny things people do. And they're all security researchers and companies and things like that. Are these, uh... So they're not really taking advantage of, you know, zero days, right? These are known exploits. These guys are are, are utilizing. Some of them. Get, some okay. are zero yeah. days. Some are okay. things they fully developed, and then some of them are like they might have discovered one little thing, or they chain certain things together. Um, so it's 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 a kind of a mixed bag, and you'll even see when they fail or they get partial, and they get money for this. Like you know, they usually pay out. You get system level access. You get fifty thousand dollars on top of whatever the reward was. So some people are getting a quarter million dollars just by doing whatever. And then of course they get a point system, they can win the competition and that kind of thing too. It's kind of cool. Yeah. I saw they reimburse the travel expenses for the teams going out. Like that's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but that's big money. So I guess the question I have is if, if something is exploited, what happens next, right? Is, is that kind of public bulletin? Hey, there's an exploit against, the Samsung S22 phone, blah, 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 blah. Or is that still kind of like, who owns that that kind of IP around that exploit then? So the competition, because the things that people exploit are people that are, say, sponsoring it, it's like their way of getting like bug tested their stuff, then find things they can go back and fix. So they get access and knowledge to that. So if Microsoft has their stuff in there, people you know blow it out of the water, and they're like, cool, we bring that back, develop, patch it, fix it. So it's kind of a good system. Um, there was a, I think it was questionable one year when people want to, I think they do different places in China was one of them where they thought that, oh, China is going to harbor all these things because they're not forced to disclose and all their types of stuff. Um, but I've never been to a competition. I watch highlights and I hear about it all the time. It's just, it's super cool. And, and it really started with breaking out of virtual, you know, virtualization, like, you know, parallels or um, VMware or whatever, like how can they get to, and those breaking out of sandboxes is, you know, um, more and more important as far as an attacker goes because more and more things are virtualized. We talked about cloud, those types of things. So when you see how attackers are doing this or what they're looking for and taking advantage of, um, it's a pretty big deal. Yeah, and I, I think that's why I brought it up and Lee, you just posted that uh, that link for Zero Day Brokers. Um, have you listened to that episode? Yeah, it's funny. I just did like two days ago. And it there's so there's a couple things I always think about when I see Zero Days. Um, and you know, First thing in the back of my mind is like, this is coming to light, but some government, some group out there already knew existed, um, mm -hmm. whether you th like to think so or not. Um, but it's always interesting because about these, first of all, these organizations and events I find are amazing because it gives all those researchers and all those hackers, we'll say hackers, um, a great outlet 
a legitimate outlet for their skills, which, you know, a lot of people growing up, the hacker stories you always hear, like I got in trouble at high school for changing my grades or changing my classes or whatever. And you're just like, like all those stories, like if you just, I heard it once and it stuck with me. If you could just take those kids and say, look what you can do with that skill. Like you can go and be stupid with it and get in trouble with it, or you could go make a living. And the the community has like taken off. Bug bounty programs. Yeah, they're everywhere now. Events like these. It's just like, man, like they really did, really did a good job with it. And I always enjoy that. On the flip side, you always wonder who else is watching there. It's not just like a bunch of fans going to, you know, watch oh, these guys. Breaking the you also think you're like, all right, so who are the guys in the suits? Who are the guys in plain clothes? You know, then they're always talking to, um, and I forget who said it in the um, in the Darknet Diary was, did someone would give a speech and they'd step off the stage and you'd see like a whole swarm of people just circle them and say like, that was neat, but what else are you working on? What, mm -hmm. what didn't you talk about? And it, that's what I always think of. It's, I mean, it's good employment opportunities, um, and I'm, I've never been in that those shoes, but I wonder if it, like how scary that is when like all of a sudden it's like, so, who are you? What do you do? What else are you organize? Like, uh, can I really talk about this here? But no, I, I think it's a great article. Yeah, so like that's that's what's scary with no affiliation, and you're getting into like some nation state espionage type things, right? So, I, I don't know. I, I, it's it's interesting. These guys that win these competitions like immediately have a target on their back, right? Like. They're not, not a bad target. Good and bad. <laughs> target. Um, yeah, I can imagine. And, and again, just we're talking about the, the brokering of the zero days and exploits. And I can only imagine that because of the bug bounties and these type of events, they're just popping up more where, you know, I might be able to buy this exploit off this guy for 10K because 10K is a lot of money to this person. But last week we were talking about one, I think it was like one point. Five million or something, Scott. We were talking about last week or two weeks ago. Oh um, yeah, um, it was one and a half million for uh, Signal. Yeah, for Signal finding exploit. a remote code execution capability right. or exploit for Signal. Right. Yep. So you're 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 basically like buying off these guys for these exploits that you're going to go immediately use before they get patched by Microsoft. Because I imagine, let's say Microsoft gets hacked in this event and they see what that remote code execution or resident vulnerability is, it's probably going to take them a sprint to get that out and push to their whole product suite. I would imagine, yeah. right? Um, and so that gives you that very small window to go attack that thing, right? And then once you're in, you're in. Um, if you can set up backdoors and C2s and, you know, the ability to get back into the system. So there's, there's a, a really weird chain of events that could happen after every single one of these type of competitions that, It'd be really interesting to dive into. Well, I mean, for me, it's just validation for what we do, right? Like, yeah, it it clearly shows that there's some really, really great products out there, but the products are so big and there's so many hands involved in developing these. It's it's almost trivial for really, really smart people to find ways to kind of bug them out and and get them to do things they're not you know intended to do. Mm -hmm. Um, so so you know it it just kind of brings validation to the whole field. Like this is why the field is not going anywhere. Cause we want to use technology more and we're not completely great at developing things yet, you know? Yeah. So, and things linger around forever. So it's not like we develop something. We have new products every day. We have products that sit around for 10 years, you know? So, so 
one thing that I will say, and I pride us in the work that we do. Um, so the threat hunting, going back to threat hunting and focusing on TTPs and not vulnerabilities or malware or APT stuff. The great thing is you could have this amazing vulnerability and it may get you root access or it may get you, you know, privilege escalation. But there's always going to be something that you need to do next steps, right? Like, so you, you, you get remote code execution and you can do this. But the nice thing is if you focus on those TTPs and the behaviors and the human aspect, you're more likely to catch that aspect or catch that activity that, you know, after the vulnerability is exploited, whether they enumerate, whether they, you know, change registry keys or if they, you know, modify this. There's always that part that we can, that we're, I guess, lucky to have that they have to do more. Um, so that, that's why Additional I really vectors like one is like a million versus activity and procedures is like a hundred, you know, like, yeah. Right. Right. Um, but that, that's why I enjoy what we do is that, yeah, you know, I'm no malware researcher. I'm no coder or, you know, I can't reverse anything, but, um, the fact that we can always rely on that human being human is, is a plus. So I, I see a, a question or a mention from Can Solo there. He's talking about why. He had a buddy that did a job interview and they asked him the question, why ransomware gangs seamlessly avoid targeting cloud infrastructure? Um, and I don't know, it's necessarily like, it's kind of, I feel like it's more like an unspoken, like they probably don't target cloud infrastructure much because they don't know who's utilizing it and who it may impact because there may be unintended targets in some aspects. And I also feel like, you know, I feel some ransomware groups, depending on what, who's supporting them and what's going on behind the scenes, once they cross a certain line and they attract the wrong attention, they, they, I mean, we've seen historically, they kind of get blown out of the water. I mean, they can come back, but you know, when you, when you, when you kind of recruit basically the forces of a nation state to come after you, a lot of your infrastructure is going to get burned. It's going to cost you, you know, you, you financially, it might cost you. There's a lot of things that can happen there. And I think that's why there's kind of these rough lines drawn, but I don't think those lines are concrete, you know? And they're probably yeah, using a lot of that cloud infrastructure as well, right? They don't well, and that might be true too, using. right? Yeah, don't burn right. them. Yeah. <laughs> or they were just trying to get, get the license. Yeah. So they get deeper. Uh, but I cost. think that's uh, like those questions. I think are really good because you know coming into this field, it's a very technical field, but everything that happens within technology, cybersecurity, attackers, defenders, it's all human driven. And so I think having those questions like, why do you think they're not doing this, you know, and thinking about it from the human side is very important, right? Um, because there are normal motivators and drivers for, I mean, I mean, look at a lot of the attackers that are crime-based, that they just want to make money. If they're not going to make money, they're not going to do it, you know? So it doesn't matter if they can or not. That's really not what it comes down to. And you know, sometimes we get wrapped up of, hey, there's a vulnerability there, vulnerability. It's easy to exploit. We're going to get pwned. It's like, if someone wants to, yes, you know, it's, but it's not guaranteed. It's it's still a human decision. Yeah. So, yeah, and yeah. I think cloud infrastructure as a just from an engineering perspective, it's it's bare metal or a virtualized environment sitting in front of a web GUI that gets you access to the things that you spin up and down. But like the attack vector there is probably very small. I would imagine. You talking right? about getting to the back end of everything? of like call it AWS, yeah. right? Like I, I feel like that is going to take a lot of very mature. Well, the sophistication we've seen. Exactly. Yeah. Right, yeah. right, right, right. And to your point, these guys just want to make money. So they're not going to go ransom Amazon, right? That's just not going to happen for them. 
so they can go take advantage of Rackspace, right? Who is not yeah, in great. the yeah. business of, I mean, they provide a service. It's very specific, but you know, it's it's not it's not just generic cloud infrastructure. So, cool. <laughs> Lee with the classic callback in Discord. <laughs> I love it. So I was uh, gonna try and find a a great Scott gift, but I was like, man, I'm not gonna record that me messing around. <laughs> All right, Lee, you want to you know, hit us with your uh, great artifact find? Yes. So this was actually shared uh, to me by uh, Raider, who's in here today. Um, and I absolutely loved it because um, I know we talked, I think, or I think we talked about uh, personal malware labs or just labs at home uh, last podcast. And I remember um, when I first got my server, I was like, well, I'm going to try Splunk. So I threw Sysmon on my you know, virtual machine. I had just enough memory to run Splunk and one virtual machine with Sysmon on it. And it was the, you know, the, or the community license. I think it was like 500 gigs. 500 cap, I think. megs. 500 megs. It's yeah. 500 and something, yeah. Yeah, yeah so nice. something, not a lot. Uh, so I, the water. I, within a minute, because like, I was like, tr I was like, I'm going to, I knew Sysmon config wide open was going to be a lot of logs, um, but I was like, maybe I could use the sim to actually help me exclude things and work on it. That didn't work because I'm pretty sure it was two minutes of log ingestion just killed the license. So I was like, all right, we got to use uh, Elastic. So I heard about the Elk stack and I started digging and I took like three or four old articles and like pieced them together on how to stand it up. Like it was like this mess of like, cause I couldn't like, I was reading um, the Elastic documentation. Um, I am no admin, I am no Linux guru. So like this was a big step and a big struggle for me. Um, at the end of the day, I won. Um, it wasn't the prettiest, but it worked. Um, and I'm you know doing all this hard work and trying to figure it out. I finally got it up and running. I got Sysmon going and I'm having all these logs and uh, great time. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Um, but I think I heard of, uh, I think the soft elk, I heard about that uh, a couple years back and throwing that on a virtual machine, just like installing everything was great because uh, it gave you all the tools and it was just a lot, a, pe a lot of people, a lot smarter than I am, put this together. Uh, it was like for a SANS course. And I was like, man, like that's a great resource to have. And then I've never messed with Cape, um, mm -hmm. but looking at uh, the article, and what it is and what it can do was just amazing. amazing. Like, and it even says like, this is like the instant responders tool. Like it sh should be a must in the instant responders toolkit. And I was like, man, you know, if, if I had this back then and I threw that on my lab, like I'd be having so much fun. Um, but I just wanted to say, uh, share that with everyone because it's a great resource. It's a great tool to have. Um, if you are standing up a lab and you're technically inclined like I am, no, yes but, or it's a struggle, um, then this is a great opportunity to actually try and grow outside your means. Cause I am, uh, I'm a threat hunter. I love endpoint logs. I love network logs. Like, and like, that's it. Like, I'll tell you, I, I, I lean heavily on our, uh, our um, infrastructure guys, like Mike and Alex. I'm like, Hey man, I, I need this done. Alex, can you help me out? And he's like, yeah, I got you. I got you. And like five seconds later it's done. And I was like, 
I've been struggling with that for like first hour and a half of the day. He's like, he's like, it's what I do. And like, I love that. Um, but yeah. you know, there's always that place to grow. Uh, can, you, and, can you give the listeners a quick rundown of what Cape is? I will, if you want. I love Cape. Yes, please. That'd be go, great. go. <laughs> All right. So yeah, I discovered Cape. Um, I think it was a Rob Lee was talking about it. Not the Dragos Rob Lee from Sands, but the other one. Um, at, uh, I think it was a cyber shield, but it was such a, it's, it's basically the best forensics tool collection tool you can possibly use. So it has a bunch of different modules for things you'd pull out forensically locally on a machine, like from the data files and everything. But what's so cool about it is it's incredibly fast. It pulls from all the shadow copies too. It deduplicates all the data and keeps all the folder structures and loads there and stores everything in like a, a virtual disk. So then when you get that image, it's like, a everything you need for instant response and forensics, you can basically double click, you know, the virtual disk, it loads it and you can use any tool that you'd use forensically and all your data is ready to go and it can interact with it, you know, natively as if, you know, because things are where they're supposed to be. Um, and what's funny is what they did is what I was dying to do when we, we had our, our SOC because we have, you know, we were using a big data solution. And I was thinking how great would it be to use cape to pull out some stuff like shimcache and things like that there's very informative and easy to find threats but it's not something that's logged you know it's like an adapt file that you have to parse and pull out um kind of stuff and cape could do it and i was like man if we can just remotely run cape you know and get snapshots essentially across the environment and then do diffs and do some big data analysis do things like that man imagine how many things we could find but we didn't have a good great way to do that and then dump it somewhere and things like that. And sure enough, like these guys did it, right? Did exactly what I wanted to do. Now there's a lot of sources they can definitely go after because Cape has tons of modules and it's kind of dependent on other tools to parse things for you too. Um, but it's such a such a cool tool. So yeah, love Cape um, and it keeps growing, keeps getting better. So if you guys don't know what it is, it's, it's super easy to use and it's definitely worth just playing with. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I've, I've been using Elastic since like 1.0 and Lee, it is a struggle. Um, they're, they're, it's a lot easier to get spun up now, especially the full, they don't call it Elk Stack anymore, it's just Elastic. With Kibana, they've they've moved to Agents and it's a little bit easier to get data in now. We have to write these parsers and regex and it was a pain back in the day. So the thing that I'm curious about though is, is that, and, and Scott, you were talking about it, there's a lot of really, really, really good like components these people are putting together in open source and GitHub, but it's not used in enterprise organizations that much, right? Um, it's very hard to, I guess, get the okay to deploy these type of things across the whole org when it could save you a bunch of time and capabilities. So like, how how would you, potentially go about showing the value of these type of tools and, and getting these plugged in. So it helps you not only in your home lab, but your, your work day to day, right? Have you all struggled with that? Trying to get these open source type of tools in? Oh, all the time. <laughs> I well, mean, like I will it's say, great. not here. <laughs> there you this go. has been like the greatest thing is like, hey, I have this idea, go. I'm like, okay. Well, great. yeah, with me, yeah, it's yeah. just like, I hate when I go to like a GitHub thing, it seems super cool. And it's like, here's the requirements to install. I'm like, oh, it's just super easy. Like do it. And I'm like, nothing's working. And then like my, like, I think I was doing a hack the box actually uh, with some folks. And this one tool I thought would be great to help us solve the problem. And it 
however my Python was installed in the environment, I was like, ah, it's not working with the tool that was there. Well, I'm going to manually download it. So when I went to the force install, it like just completely ripped out Python off the box. I'm like, uh, so then I had to go back through and like, how do I get everything back to where it was so that I can then try to do more thing? You know, it was just a pain. So yeah, sometimes it kind of bites you, but I mean, I think playing with that stuff really helps you understand a lot and just makes you better at your job basically. Cause you know, we're tinkers, you know, yeah. in general. I've, so. heard, I've heard of orgs utilizing people's home labs for malware exploitation and, and triage, right? They didn't want to put that in their own infrastructure so these guys figured out a way to just have it in their home labs, right? And then, you know, there's a weird blend and cross-pollination there, but it solved the problem for them. Um, and they were able to use, a, you know, the the amazing tool sets these guys are putting out on GitHub. I mean, I, you know, there's there's these GitHub collections of all the different cybersecurity tool sets and things that you can deploy. Um, there's probably an interesting combination of those that would basically replace a SOC and give you the same capabilities if if you could reliably re reproduce that over and over again but so there's always two things that i always think about um and and i think this was some uh, experience i've had is like it's like hey let's do this it's open source it's free uh you know let's do it and then like either someone says we don't have someone that can administer it like we can we don't have someone yeah. that can just keep up with it yeah. um or they say you're gonna do it like fine, you're gonna do it, and you're like, well, I have all these other things to do, and it's like I can't make that a daily thing. Um, so right. those, you know, those hurdles exist. Um, and then the buy-in. Um, I think we should be reaching that point in time soon. That there's, if you talk to someone or like a manager, or a CIO, or you know, whoever, and you say, I want a malware lab or a lab environment that we can detonate malware, that their first question or thought isn't, oh my God, we're gonna we're gonna hose the entire production system. You know, like that is like old school thinking, and I get that, you know, as we're getting smarter, we're all getting older. Um, we're actually like people coming in now to entry level jobs have grown up with cybersecurity. The people that are managing them have lived in cybersecurity. So we're like slowly getting that um to that point in time where everyone is understood cybersecurity that's in cybersecurity. You're not just a um, you know, like a Linux admin filling a spot. Um, so yeah. I think those situations will go, will be further and few between, um, but we'll see. And there's a lot of great companies now that are basically offlifting that capability so it doesn't have to be in the org. You can spin up labs outside of the organization, um, add in your policies, your agents, kind of recreate what you're doing from an organization perspective and not have that tied to the org. So, um, well, I mean, I'm kind of curious, like, you know, we have people listening and people on discord, um, when it comes from some of their favorite tools and stuff, are there, are there specific tools and things that, you know, they've come across, um, that they think would be worth sharing for either us to look into because they think it's really cool. And maybe we can incorporate some of these things to talk about them or, you know, tools that they're interested in, at least, you know, I think that'd be also a cool share. So, you know, feel free yeah. to share those, you know, we'll, if we, if we see value in them, we'll definitely, you know, chime in or do something with them yeah. so we'll deploy them in the lab play around with them see how they yeah. work yeah give feedback i think that'd be cool i mean that may might be a whole podcast right like pick the you know three tools play around with them three top tools uh, demo them show them why we like them why we don't yeah we'll bring alex on just video him <laughs> while he struggles there you hey, go we want you to stand there and install this live and we got to see how right? you no don't do that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you no. know mike's just over his shoulder like 
Yeah, there'll be a lot of bleeps. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean we're I mean that was about thirty plus minutes of kind of the, the top three articles we wanted to talk about. And I think we want yeah. to transition into some higher level topics to have a discussion around. Um yes, see how many we had, can get through. You had like a threat hunting tip of the day you kinda of want to incorporate and kind of talk through some let's, uh your let's ideology. There. Let's do that. Let's do that. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, right. so um as a threat hunter, there's you know things that I've learned or I've grown to learn. Um, and one of the questions that either customers or people in the community that are you know asking me questions, because um, you know I'm always willing to connect to people. And the first thing I normally say is like, feel free to ask me any questions. Like, please pick my brain, because you know the more I can share um, to the you know people trying to get into cybersecurity, become threat hunters, like the better they are starting off. And then they if you if you have a better starting point than I do, I have a feeling that you could get smarter and get better than I ever will be. Um, so, you know, just trying to do my part. Um, but there's a question that's always like, you know, with incident response, it, whether you're going into a new environment or you're in your own environment, um, what, what's like an easy win to do? And like, I was thinking about that and I was just like, you know, masquerading, like we always see like winlogon.exe, uh, was a you know was a problem and that was the you know the source um but so what are the issues with that or how can we detect that and i just threw together something that i thought about um you know, you, you build a, the first thing you do is you want to look at what are all the legitimate processes on your machine right now so look in system 32 look in syswow 64 which should reflect the same thing um but just enumerate all those things that could be abused uh executables dlls whatnot um, and then that's that's learning what exists on the Windows operating operating system um, by default, right? It's like you get a quick lesson there, you get an idea of what's going on, um, where stuff is coming from, and then you start poking around in your program uh, files, whether it be program files, uh, program files x86, you can even look in program data, uh, and you know find your Microsoft Office location, and figure out what's there. What tools does your organization use on a daily basis that are legitimate? Find the directory, find where it lives, um, you know, map everything out using a SIM, EDR, whatnot, uh, but find those processes and enumerate them. And then the easiest way would be to take that, um, that process or that executable and say, all right, I'm looking for command.exe executing from somewhere other than system32. Or, you know, winword.exe, uh, executing from not the legitimate, you know, Microsoft Office directory. Now, and one, the first thing that'll help you do is learn, you know, Windows uh, system internals. What exists there already? Um, what can it do? And then, you know, you you start to learn your environment. What are we using? What looks legitimate? Um, what's a application that we use? Um, and so on. And you'll just learn. You'll start to learn there. And then you can start going into the harder stuff, like, um, you know. Okay, all these people are using PowerShell, um, but from there, who is allowed to do what? And that that starts to get harder with permissions because then you you know you can start looking at command line arguments, you can start looking at PowerShell commandlets that are being used. Um, but like I said, the easy win is find legitimate processes and exclude their uh, native directories. So, so I hope you learned something. Yeah, one of the things I like, and it, it kind of hits home the way I like to describe threat hunting to begin with, is like I think there's a natural, you know, analogy to just real hunting, right? Like 
to be a good hunter, you kind of have to know your landscape, right? And that's kind of how you know uh, what to expect, where you can be, where things may be that you want to hunt. Um, and then I use the analogy of traps, like animals walk the same path. You set traps. Those are like your detections, right? You set up detections. It's where the traps will always hit. But when things go around the traps, that's what you have to hunt because it's not being trapped. Um, so it kind of fits. And that's kind of like knowing your environment, kind of like what you described to kind of walk through there. You know, just because you're in threat hunting doesn't mean you have to constantly be hunting for adversaries. Profiling is really important. Um, profiling how people act in your environment, profiling known processes, like, hey, you have these business processes and you expect them to behave specific ways. They shouldn't change too much. Like, it doesn't hurt if you've got the, the time and you have nothing to hunt on your plate to do those things because that might help you kind of build what we say um, internal knowledge hunts kind of thing, right? Like, hey, I know my environment so well. If there were attackers, this is the things they go after and this is what might change, that kind of stuff. So. So I've been chewing on an idea. So in Lee, uh, you're talking about the the processes where these programs fire off, the folders, the x86, you know, folder pass, program files. It'd be really, I mean, these these organizations that build these products, I, I feel like they should know that pattern of execution very well, right? Um, they should. <laughs> and I, and so, the only reason I say that is there's always there's always going to be that organization that's like we put everything here, anything we apply we're going to move it and put it here, right? So you're going to run into that hurdle. So any of that customization around the installation paths and how things are manipulated, right? Well, right. like okay. people that run thing from like say services from admin shares, which you shouldn't do, right? Right, right. But they might do that because that's easy for them to deploy services that way. Okay. Yeah, I was just thinking like from a from a logging and standardization perspective, if that was something that was available from the product company, it's like here is baseline what everything is. So you don't have to go do that work, Lee. But I think everything you were just talking about is an amazing first step to understand an environment. Is like just do that for a week or two mm -hmm. weeks. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hopefully your your admins are administrating and and installing things from a central location. Um, uh, you know, I think I'm trying to think if CrowdStrike does it, but like you have these tools that you can basically have your standardized you know policies around these are the acceptable applications. If you're whitelisting, right, um, and then be able to just monitor that from a sim perspective right yeah yeah i mean honestly if i would get hired that would be the first thing i would try and do that's, Look, that's looking what i would back like at, to spend time doing yeah yeah like <laughs> yeah. looking back at when i first uh came to first energy as a uh sock analyst it was more of drinking from a fire hose and trying to learn what to do because i went from and that was when i went from network operations to keeping the you know communication going to being like hey you have to think like a security analyst now and that was just like wait what and it was a brutal um but now knowing what i do now if i would sit in an organization i would sit there and just start enumerating everything like what 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 lives here what exists here how does it look what's um, rare and what's not that's kind of how you it's expecting to have that much log data right like that's a big problem with security tools now like you might have a year worth 90 days 
Uh, I know some companies are touting like 400 days. I mean, that's that's the biggest issue is, is the legacy data that you might be missing, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah, I mean, I like to take bite size. Like, I would probably profile me and then compare me to others, and then like expand out right. from there. So you're saying um, personas, right? So you have an admin, you have a salesperson, you have yeah. Hopefully, there's some standardization, but you can get those kind of buckets of yeah, data. Yeah, you kind of can break things up. You can yeah, you know, just base you can slice things many different ways, but the approach is kind of the same. You're just approaching a different kind of target set or sure. grouping sets together kind of thing, and then compare and contrast. I mean. It kind of becomes a long tail analysis type approach in general, um, right. but just just understanding what's there because like the worst thing you do is you see something you've never seen before and you're like that looks bad and you're like, and Evans like we've been running this on every machine this is what we use for this you're like oh I've just never looked into that so of course it looks bad to me you know right right you see some That's powerful always done it here right right yeah. um yeah no that's really interesting I, I I feel like there's a product around that I was just chewing on it for <laughs> i kind of <laughs> went like eyes head down i was like oh there's i feel like there's a thing that could solve that problem but yeah okay we'll talk later yeah exactly exactly <laughs> no one this is fight club so uh so yeah mike i think you got the next big topic to hit on here yeah yeah all right so um kind of at a high level and i know you guys have done probably this more than I have from uh, just from my background from an engineering perspective, but talking about information sharing. Um, and so I know there's a lot of supposed industry standards, um, organizations, government agencies that have tried to standardize the process of information sharing, um, going to you know CISA, the traffic light protocol, um, I think ISACs are big, so the retail ISACs, financial ISACs, you know, groups of industries that are trying to share information about their particular verticals. Um, you know, if we get into the software side, I know MISP, um, which is more about Intel sharing, but they really try to standardize on the capability to share uh, indicators of compromise across a bunch of different organizations if you have it configured correctly. Um, and typically this seems to be more akin to the threat intelligence as we know it today, where it's indicates their compromise, it's domains, IPs, right. hashes, heuristics. Um, but I think there needs to be kind of a, a different approach to step a little bit above that, that and get a little bit more high level about this approach. Um, and so in this conversation, you know, have you two deployed information sharing capabilities in your past? Um, I know you are both prior military, so there's a lot of that communication, um, but we can kind of start there. Have you done it? And then if you have, what problems have you seen with that process? Yes. <laughs> no. So, yes, right, for on. problems. Um, yeah, so information sharing is... Uh... It's an interesting topic because it seems like a no-brainer, but then all of a sudden when people want to start doing it, there's all these things that just get in the way, right? Um, and and it's usually not the person that wants to share things. I mean, sometimes it is based on like, well, what do I use? What avenues do I take? What should I share? You know, those might be personal barriers. But I see a lot of, um, for instance, some organizations, especially like 
how it depends on how conservative the organization is in general but sometimes like legal and and stuff kind of feels uncomfortable because what happens if you share something that maybe isn't accurate enough or something that if someone were to take that information and start blocking things it impacts their business now who's liable like did you just share something that impacts someone else's business i've heard mm -hmm. that get in the way to me i feel like you know that's part of like the agreement and sharing like there should be some you know if i'm going to share things and you're going to receive things this way there's a disclaimer right um that should take care of that i've also seen where it's just not easy because everyone wants to review everything that goes out the door but we don't want you to share anything about our business about our processes about our users about whatever and it's like that privacy kind of aspect of it um which you know has complications especially when you start worrying about compliance like what if you share something and it shows we're not compliant because we did something that we shouldn't have done and now that's out in the open and you know whether or not you handle it properly or not internally that's not how you want to be identified as not being compliant you want to be able to self-report those things right and in a way you probably could make that part of the process um and then um you know like i said knowing what to share so this is where i think it's interesting um because I think IOCs, when it comes to threat intelligence, should be a no-brainer. I, I know historically some people didn't want to share IOCs because they're like, I give away this information, adversaries learn that I gave this information away, and then now they can adjust. But what we've seen being threat hunters is those IOCs adjust all the time now because we talked about cloud infrastructure. We talked about all these easy things that are to change. It's the techniques that they can't adjust very easily. So I feel right. like sharing IOCs should be kind of the no-brainer now. It's, there, there really should be no real risk. I, I get it if someone wants to sit and watch someone's activity and that's like an investigation and government's involved or whatever, maybe. Um, but still, I, I feel like those things should be you know more openly shared. Um, but then also, um, one of the things that I think is crazy is um, when we talk about TTPs and things to share is I'm surprised people don't share Sigma more often. Right, like everyone's really good at sharing IOCs, but we should be sharing kind of the methodology of what we would detect on, because everyone can write a detection rule for IOC, but not everyone can write a detection rule when they see, you know, X executing this, but this way are these command line options, right? Um, that is more valuable, and that's kind of like why I think what we sit in when we build things specific for hunts, why that's so important, right? Because we're sharing that information that has a little more return than just an IOC. Um, and and then, you know, some of the requirements, so in the sharing that I have done, um, to kind of touch on that. So there's, you know, the ISACs do a pretty good job with trying to create an environment to share in. Um, miss that whole, you know, project and stuff, be able to share stuff and, you know, connect to people's different, you know, missed instances, cool. Um, big fan of anomalies, trusted circles. That's what we've used in the past. But I like their trusted circle model because it's kind of like um, you can have multiple circles you're involved in and you can choose how you want to share to those based on different criteria. So it makes it takes away some of that barrier as far as like, well, do you trust the people you're sharing to or do you not care and you share to everybody like you can have those kind of options, which I think are really important. And that's kind of what we did. So we also um, then we talked about. We shared a lot by leveraging the trusted circles. But we were sharing everything. We we automated the collection of, you know, open source reporting. Like we were crazy on Twitter. We were crazy on um, um, all the open source reporting from different uh, security vendors that you know do blog posts, news posts, those types of things. And granted, we were scraping IOCs, 
but we're also sharing the actual report itself. So you have all the context, which I thought was really important too. Um, and so, so that's that. And then what was great was, I mean, it was just fast. And that was the first time where we started doing this process and we were sharing it out. We started getting ahead with IOCs even where we would get a phishing campaign and we'd know about the IOCs 45 minutes before it hit us, which is like never heard of, but it's because we were using platforms that were simple, easy, fast, right? And I think those are like the requirements you have to have a sharing. The second you have to go through days of, well, we got to fill out this form, we got to have this approval, we got to do, you know, that doesn't facilitate the need that's required for sharing. And IOCs, like I said, should be simple. I, I get, but then the other thing I think that is also hindrance of sharing is everyone only waits to share if they're impacted or attacked, right? Because that's like the system's built around that. Hey, if you're seeing this activity, share it. So people are like, well, I'm not going to share anything unless I see activity. It's like, well, that's kind of a bad model because if you do see activity and it's really bad, you may not want to share it because all the other hurdles that I mentioned before. So then there's already things naturally blocking that. And then if you're not being attacked, then you're not participating. But there's so many things we learn as security professionals from day to day that we can like, hey, I researched this. I found this really cool attack. I found this cool technique. I found whatever this interesting thing that doesn't really relate to me, but I think it's valuable. We should be able to categorize what we share and just share information. Um, and we should keep that pipe full. Um, and then obviously the other requirement I'd probably stitch on that is make sure you're using something that can be easily ingestible and in different things you use, right? Um, I think that's why government has those standards for the type of stuff they use, right? Is so that it makes it easy, like sticks format. Well, we can ingest sticks and we can do this with this, that, or whatever. Um, that's great. And that's why you kind of need to standardize some things. But um, the, what we share should probably be a little more open-ended. So kind of went on a raging soapbox there. Um, <laughs> But, but I hope I kind of touched, touched on some of those things <laughs> you're asking no, no. about. You, you hit all the points that I was uh, thinking about, like um, just spewing out IOCs. You know, it's easy, but like, what win do you get? You get that easy win of are we impacted or not? Um, but the the king, the thing that I always think about is context is so important that if you have mm -hmm. that context of how the attack went down, you have the full report in front of you. That's where you where you can start digging out the behaviors, the TTPs, um, and you know start stitching it together and work out a plan. Um, also, uh, you mentioned knowing what to share. Like how many there's been so many times that we're like you know organizations like well, you know I don't know if we can share that. I don't know I don't want to share that. You know and if they don't understand that, um, or if they don't know how what or when to share, then that. that it's just going to fail right away. Like, you know, if they're only reporting on major incidents, like you said, uh, you know, then you have, then you have hurdles, but if you have a nice well-oiled machine, that's just, Hey, you know, like you said, the trusted circles, uh, you have that good environment of saying, here's what we know, here's what we do, you know, go after it. Well, what's what I thought was really cool. Kind of the policy we, we put in place when it came to sharing was the easy thing to meet those requirements was, Hey, if we got it from the internet, we're sharing it. Yeah, you know, it, it was sense. already out there. We we may have found it first. We may have published it out to you know all of our sources that are all in this collected circle, or whatever. There's no reason for us to hold on to information we found that was freely available. Now the decisions really then came down to the things that weren't freely available that we had to make. Um, I was more apt to share things that I thought would help people. Um, but I thought that was an easy policy, and I think that's why we were able to 
pulling so much threat information into the platform because we were just scraping things that were good sources continuously. And we've automated that, right? You know, made that process really easy. Um, even to the point where I think I even had the, um, what is it, shortcuts on the phone, on the iPhone, right? Where you could do automations, where if I found something interesting on Twitter or on my phone, um, one of my analysts, Chris Collins, I give him a call out here. Um, he basically wrote, wrote a shortcut and it was basically saying like, yeah, if you find something interesting, there's two shortcuts, one from Twitter, one from a URL you put in there, it throws it into our platform. We ingest it and then we strip out all the IOCs and anything associated with it. And then we'd automatically start detecting on those retroactively and moving forward, like really cool process. And I could do it from home on my phone, which I'm already using my phone anyways to do these things and look at things. And the only thing I'm doing is like, can I remember this tomorrow to do something with it? Or will I have a million other things to deal with, you know? So it was great. So that's the thing. So I guess two points for my uh, kind of view of this. It's one, how do you operationalize the intelligence, right? So you just gave an amazing example of at least having some process in place to automate the retroactive and proactive hunting for those IOCs. Mm -hmm. um, coming from my experience in the source space, I would go into organizations that just wanted to do automatic blocking of those ICs immediately. And so that's where you get into, that's a that's a tricky place, right? There's one thing to detect something, but there's one thing to put in process to just like block things altogether, right? And so it's really just an understanding of how to operationalize that data set um, properly, where you're not exposing yourself to a lot of risk if I block Google today or DNS yeah. or some sort of like, AWS external IP that we use for services, right? And so, we've heard horror stories about that all over the place. Um, the one so that's thing I would say to the coming to play, right? The but, auto blocking thing and a good policy that we thought about in a process for that is, if you're getting things that you want to try to implement auto block policy, have something that automatically looks back 30 days of any activity. If you saw no activity the past 30 days, there's a good chance if you were to automatically block it, you're not going to impact business that day. Now, if you have right. like quarterly or annual processes, maybe you reach out to specific sources that are, you know, more than 30 days, but, you know, go long spans without talking, um, you might impact yourself there and be aware of those. But I mean, that there's ways, I think, to diminish some of those negative returns. And that's great logic. Like, it's not immediately block it, but let's look for it first and then understand what that actual service or process mm -hmm. is before we make a determination. So that's where you need to still have those human pieces in play to make those kind of decisions. And then I guess the other part of that is um, where the ISACs really come into play is, and Scott, you said you wanna share everything you can to your groups and your trusted circles because you're hoping that they would do the same for you. Mm -hmm. So especially when you get into industry specific sharing where financial ISAC, if I'm bank A and I get attacked today, bank B is probably gonna be attacked at some point in the future or they have in the past. So that's where it's really important to be able to share those indicators of compromise or intelligence or Sigma rules or detections or whatever you have within, I mean, there's competition, but I mean, mm -hmm. you're all trying to make money. It's a capitalist society. Well, there's, you have to kind of, I, I feel like security analysts are below that level of thinking. Where like, Yeah. Unless you're a security vendor, it's like, there's no competition. Like we all want to do really well at our jobs and, and so like we don't there's no one there's no like hey i know something and if, if you knew it it really helped yeah like we're like we just we're in a, we're a culture where we want to share and help each other absolutely um 
so it just strikes me weird when there's people that don't want to share because they feel like they're given like the only value that they have selling their soul right right and that's what's really cool about the culture of cybersecurity that i think i've seen is like with all the the analysts that i've worked with in banks financials products um healthcare they're just looking out for their next guy you know on the front lines right like we're all in this together um yeah. where they're not overly concerned with i mean they're concerned with the business but they're going to protect the guys next to them if they can right like you know it we're the level of pressure is on everybody within this industry yeah and honestly even if you have all that knowledge are you going to be that one security analyst that stopped the ransomware attack because you knew exactly <laughs> what to do like you know what i mean like it's not like you're gonna right, be like right, i've right, been right. there i know like you could know all that information and still not do anything. Um, yep. But um, you mentioned uh, putting a block in place. So I, I like, I remember doing that, you know, you always do the 30 day check. And if you think about like, once you block something, how hard is it to get off that block list? Cause then you have to justify, like if you go back 30 days or 90 days and keep looking and say like, look, we're not seeing any of this activity. Let's just let it go versus saying, block it immediately and now we have to go back and do a lot more work to justify why we're pulling it off the block list and then that that makes um you know that can make you look bad or that could put a lot of anxiety on your management or like you know, a good this. point because that is resources that'll bigger those lists get too right yeah like hey we're going to review the block list like okay you know we got to go back and go through all those things um but it, it's just always harder to un undo that work in my opinion. Yeah, I guess how would you review a block list? Let's say you have 4,000 IP addresses on that. No one list. does. <laughs> you have to go back and review it, right? You just Interns. start over. You wipe it Interns. and you start over or something, right? Like that's that's not a task that can be realistically done um, by a human no. person, right? Like you might go automate looking up those IP addresses against intelligence, Firestone or whatever and unblock them one by one but yeah it's it seems the like it's a, you get from that is really no right 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 so that's when you just end up growing these lists and they end up being a million indicators long and yeah. you honestly don't know what's on them anymore there's no way to know what's on them and contextualize them so it's not like it's an ip address but it's not like it's an ip address with the threat and the link that you found it on and the situation and why you blocked it there's none of that metadata it's just an ip on a massive list that right. big umbrella saying no <laughs> exactly exactly well, i've seen some automation or some processes where it'll hit a list and it's like a watch list and then activity starts going to it then there's an action to, to try to go block you know based on the human like hey we saw this it's been on this list and it's supposed to be bad and then there's that human interaction to basically say yes or no but all the process is carried out at that point right right so, but yeah, there's this like creative solution. I mean, some of it comes down to the business models, you know, people have to work under, like where do they do their business? How's their business done? What would be the impact and how quick you have to be to respond, that kind of stuff, so. Yeah, Yeah, I think it'd be easier just to have a whitelist and then block everything else. <laughs> Whitelists are easy until you start talking about cloud services. Exactly, right? Um, <laughs> I, I, think, I think there are some cloud services that are doing a better job of here's my DNS and here's all the IP addresses that we operate on, right? Um, to give you a fighting chance to be able to build a whitelist around those, but. Like um, never block Netherlands because a lot of bad comes out of Netherlands, but a lot of hosted services come out of Netherlands. 
you know, hmm. as an example, okay. we, we went through geo-blocking and that was something we learned was like, hey, we have no reason to have Netherlands traffic and we have all these IP spaces that have just known bad activity. And then all of a sudden all of our things went down and we're like, why are we using things? <laughs> oh, it's just being routed that way. Yeah, it's just right. Netherlands has great hosting services. Huh. Dark yeah. fiber, something, yeah. yeah. Who knows, <laughs> who knows? We should take a trip, Scott, Lee. We'll go over there and find out ourselves. Yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. investigate On that. the road. We'll yeah, check yeah, that yeah. we'll go investigate it personally. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Physically exactly. check the black list, the blog list. <laughs> All right, so I think we got time for one more if you want to track, tackle another topic, right? Yeah, Lee, do you want to jump on yours? Yes, my favorite. Um, something that I personally suffered from in my last uh, last role. Um, I was lucky enough to survive it and then make it here, um, but it's imposter syndrome. So. Like I said, the, the first four years, uh, or I guess the first three, no, it was four years of my cybersecurity uh, journey, I was at First Energy. I was learning how to do things. I was learning my job. I was learning, you know, it, there was no imposter syndrome there because it was like, it was more of like scrambling to catch up. Like, mm -hmm. I don't even think I ever thought like, man, what am I, like, do I belong here? It was like, I have to earn to be here. So like, imposter syndrome didn't even really affect me then because i was in the learning process i knew it i knew that i was ignorant to a lot of things um but then uh i got hired by huntington the bank uh up here in northeastern and i came in as a lead uh a lead analyst and i was like i got the, you know i was like i've been experienced you know i've had four years on a belt i got this and like i hit the ground running and it was just like the first thing that came to my mind was um, you know, as the days went by, I realized I didn't know the network. There were they were analysts that worked there for like years longer than I were, or than I I had been. And I was the brand new guy, and um, I was supposed to be the lead though. And I would say I'd be like looking through the sim, and they'd be like, "I this is this this," is this. and like they could answer questions like this. And I was like, "What? Like, I get I I get I need to you know experience to learn that." Um. But man, like, how am I supposed to lead you if you know all those? Uh, if you know all the answers, how am I supposed to lead you? What am I supposed to do? Um, and I think it was around like six months. It just hit me hard, where I just started like questioning my my skill set, questioning like, do I belong here? Um, and I limped along for the next six months, and I was like, you know, this is, um, I'm not in a good situation mentally. Um, I, I'm not doing my job. Like I. I will be the first to say it. I, I was not a good fit in that in that position, um, and mostly my fault um, because I couldn't learn to live with the imposter syndrome. Couldn't learn how to like dig out of the hole um, because all I did was I'd wake up and be like, "Man, what's gonna get me today?" And you know, it was just it was just a rough time. Um, but then you know, my um, my passion was threat hunting. My passion was creating rules uh, to find malicious activity. And Eric Sigmund actually reached out to me um, and he was like, hey, let's talk about Cyborg. I was like, please. I was like, what do you guys do? And I started looking up. I was like, oh my God. I was like, here it is. And then like I started, you know, started talking, got pulled into here. And then um, imposter syndrome still hits me every once in a while. <laughs> but I know how to learn it. And I know it. And I'll tell you, especially workshops. Workshops are the hard ones because it's like, um, uh, or customer interactions, because I never know. Um, I don't want to treat. I don't want to ever treat everyone like I know everything that um, 
you know, I, I should know all the answers and you're just listening to me and you're going to learn from me talking. Um, cause I know there's people out there that have been doing this job a lot longer than I have. And I know they know a lot of stuff that I don't. Um, so I've, I've learned to get on a certain level where I'm teaching or trying to teach together almost like I can try and say like, this is how I'm doing it. Please let me know if you have to do it a certain way. Let, let me know um, how you deal with things. And, and I found that that approach really helps out uh, when it comes to workshops, customer interactions, or just day-to-day -day work. Um, I've learned to lean on other individuals um, and say, hey, I don't understand this. You know, can you, can you help me out? And that has been a completely humbling experience. But if you can, if you are struggling with this um, currently, um, I would encourage you to, first of all, understand that it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to not know something and that the people around you aren't there to judge you or, you know, determine your fate. But everyone knows a, a certain aspect of their job. They might know it better than you and they might not, but they're, you know, find those people talk to everyone, learn out, learn what they know, and then like just be a sponge and suck it up and say like, all right, now I know all this. You know, what what else do I need to learn? So as soon as, soon as you figure that out, um, and it's it took me a year. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and I'm still, you know, I'm still running into situations like that, but I, I really encourage you to um, feel like, just understand that you're not gonna know everything. Uh, you may be an expert. You may people might call you a subject matter expert or a lead or a manager or something. You know, but it's okay to say, "Hey, you know, can you explain this to me? I don't understand this fully." Um, so that was my spiel. Uh, it because I will tell you that one year was a lot of learning and more about myself than cybersecurity. Um, but yeah. I'm glad I had it because of uh, where I'm at now. Mike Scott. You guys have never uh, suffered from imposter syndrome, right? Dude, I like live that like all the time. And it's funny because like, I mean, you know me the longest. I've done a lot of things, but yeah. it doesn't matter what I do. I, I just always assume everyone around me knows more yeah. or yeah. someone in the room will prove something I've been saying is correct as false, right? Like doesn't matter. Like that's just what I feel like all the time. And, you know, it's, I think it's funny because our field does it to ourselves too, right? Like, you see entry level jobs where you need five to 10 years experience, like automatically you feel like, well, I'm not going to be equipped for this. And I, and it's just entry level, like how am I going to be able to do anything else? You know? But the one thing I do appreciate is I really, really, really hate arrogant security professionals. And so I feel like if, if imposter syndrome can affect everybody, I really hope it affects them too, because <laughs> like, there's nothing worse than that guy who's not willing to work or talk with anybody because they know all the answers and you, they kind of treat you as, you know, below. Right. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, my first interview getting asked really technical questions on things that I shouldn't have had the answers for. And they weren't great questions for what I was really interviewing for, but you know, it made me feel like, man, there's no way I'm gonna get this job, you know, like already out of the gate just by some of the questions they're asking, but I do have, some things that I think help, um, at least have helped me when it comes to imposter syndrome in general. And one of them is really focus on how you learn, right? Because the processes and methods of which you learn best um, are really important because it's not about having the answer, it's about getting the answer in our field. Because there's yeah. so many things you need to have knowledge on, right? 
Um, so really prove how resourceful you are with that. The other thing is um, be able to work with knowledgeable people, like have enough people skills where people like to be around you because there's nothing better than people that know a lot and they like to share how much they know. I mean, that's just, that's just a given. And if you're, if you're truly interested in learning from them, they're more willing to share overshare to the point where you might not be able to absorb everything, but that's a good way to basically kind of be mentored um, unintentionally for some of that stuff. And then another example of like, you know, maybe there's an incident or something going on that um, you don't know anything about and maybe you don't feel like you can be an asset be an asset in other ways. Like, hey, one thing that everyone fails to do in instance and things like that are document things. Be the person that documents things. That's a great way to be the where all the information pours in, where you get exposed to all of it. And now you just got, you know, experience through other people, but also have the full story. You're not missing bits um, or things like that. Um, so there's so many ways to kind of show value, but just always be hungry. Um, Never, never let yourself be shut down. Like use imposter syndrome to kind of motivate you to do more. I'm not saying burn out, but don't be afraid to dig into something you're completely unfamiliar with because sometimes that's the most rewarding thing at the end of the tunnel when you're like, I've been struggling and beating my head against the wall. We talked about using open source tooling and getting them working installed. Like, I don't know how many times I'm like, I'm a, I'm a smart guy. I've done this a hundred times and I can't get this one thing to execute. And then the thing I'm doing is retrying the same thing over and over again, thinking I'm going to get a different result, right? Like I ran it this way. I ran it this way. It's like, okay, let's take a step back. And then when I finally figure it out, I'm like, I'm a genius. I'm really good at my job. You know, like I have that feeling for just a second. Right. But yeah. Um, so yeah, be vigilant. Nice. Stay hungry and humble. Yeah. Yeah. No, imposter syndrome is a real thing, man. Um, yeah. I think, over the past, call it 10 years in cyber, I've, I've had it most years, right? Um, I can remember coming into my first job as an intern and getting moved over to the security engineering team and then owning and shipping a product within like two months of that because of need, right? And so I think, Scott, to your point, being able to like listen, learn, and ask questions and not being scared to ask other people questions if you need help. Um, is one of the biggest things that you can do to help kind of ward off that imposter syndrome. Um, I think understanding and learning how you learn personally. So for me, like a couple years ago, I had to learn web development. I remember sitting on my computer, banging my head against the, the, the desk because it took me a long time to understand those concepts. But like knowing that I am a little bit of a slower learner when it comes to that kind of thing helped me kind of carpet, uh, um, you know, figure out that like, I can get there, right? I know I can get there. Um, it's just gonna take me a little bit longer to get to that place. Um, but I think it's one of the, I had, a, I had a coach back in the day that said, pressure is a privilege. And I think if you have imposter syndrome and you're in the position where you have that much pressure and you're feeling like an imposter, I feel like you're in a really good place in your life then because you're pushing yourself in a way that like you're not comfortable and complacent. I think you need to use that as an opportunity to grow and learn. You can't grow bit. if you're not in that kind of uncomfortable position. Absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely yeah. not. Um, so I, I took that to heart. Um, that was in my baseball playing days, but like um, I really leveraged that little statement to say, look, I'm in, I am stressed. I'm in a high stressful situation, but I'm here for a reason because 
I'm not comfortable. So let me let me soak in all this experience and try to get better. And I think that that allows you to get through that imposter syndrome a little bit. Yeah, there's a, there's nothing worse than starting a new job. I remember even starting at Cyborg. The first thing I was thinking was like, I just got to do one thing that someone else sees as valuable, so that I feel like I'm not a fake. You know, like and so like it just took me forever to get to that point where like I think I did something that everyone actually liked. All right, now I feel like I fit in, right? But until right, then, you right, kind of right. feel like that outsider until you're kind of interacting or contributing in some way. And so, yeah, um, yeah it's tough. Yeah, and shoot, starting Cyborg. I mean, I I mean, the first year I felt like an imposter. Like I've never done this before. I've never started a company before. And, you know, having to hire the amazing group of guys that we have here and, and figuring out the product and going to market and all the things that go along with it. Yeah. Every day I was waking up like, oh crap, what am I doing? Right. But like, again, from that past experience, that pressure, that feeling, I was like, okay, let's just keep moving forward and learning from the situation. And I asked a lot of questions. Um, I reached out to past mentors um, I reached out to people internally, be like, what should we do here? Um, so I, I think, you know, Lee and Scott, that point of just being humble and learning to listen and ask those questions and just getting involved wherever you can is a, is a big help um, so to get through that. One thing that's really cool that I did not have when I started my cybersecurity career, we call it, was all the resources that are available now. Sure. Like I remember starting and it was like, if I had to do a Google search for certain types of attacks, I sometimes wouldn't get results on those types of attacks. You know, I'd be like, yep. I don't even know what to do here because the internet won't tell me anything. And I don't have a person or a book to go to. Like I'm literally yep. stuck. Like people nowadays, at least they should be comforted that there's almost too much information. So they got to figure out how to distill it down. Um, yep. but, you know, definitely getting your, you know, figure out where your resources are and, and leverage what other people's like people know good resources that have been in the field a while too yeah. you know pick their brains so we have uh AAA xox ask the question how do we encourage knowledge sharing within our team and i think that's another big thing and lee oh, yeah. you going in as a lead um over at huntington um i think setting up the culture in a way that you feel like you're in a team environment um so everybody's moving and operating in the same direction so we definitely encourage it. We heavily use, you know, our chat infrastructure. Um, guys are talking every day. I mean, we open it up. I mean, we have very long conversations about very random things, but it helps build that team commodity. Um, if you kind of connect uh, it to like a sports team, right? We're all playing for the same goal, that championship, to be successful. And so um, there's not, while there's a competitive nature internally, um, we're on the same team. So we wanna make each other better every day. Um, so I think it's really about company culture and and having that ability to reach out to somebody if you need something or know that that person's willing to spend time to give you that information or share that knowledge. So I don't think it's a it's a necessarily a, a defined thing you put in place. I think it's more of a feel and a culture fit for the company. Yeah, I feel like so, Communication is one of those things where if you're only forced to communicate about work things, you're not going to communicate well, right? Communication amongst your peers is something you learn by interacting with people. Yep. Um, so I feel like it's very healthy and important when you want to establish that open sharing, knowledge sharing kind of culture 
is to be able to talk about things on many different levels, you know, be able to have the casual conversations, even though like, you don't feel like, oh, I'm not working. Well, you're interacting and learning to communicate with your peers. Like it's, it's important and healthy to do that. And obviously don't take advantage of that. But, um, but there's those types of things or even talking through like, you know, um, some companies, they, they will have activities and things. They try to, you know, promote the engagement between people. Like the people, everyone has a unique personality on a team. Um, and you won't learn how to communicate best if you don't communicate with that person on a semi-regular basis or be able to talk to them as a person one-to-one that's not just about work. Um, so I think, you know, figuring out how to, how to build that in your culture and facilitate that is a really important step to help, you know, that knowledge share. Yep. And even if it's, I mean, depending on the availability of, you know, Slack or Teams or whatever, there's, you can create channels and have like subgroups and have conversations there. But even if you have the ability to stand up, maybe it's like a, a, a small hackathon or mm-hmm. get involved in helping write a paper for a, a, a CFP, right? Um, uh, capture the flag on the weekends or, if it's if it's still specific to what you're doing from an industry perspective, but just outside of the work grind, I think it's 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 really important to to build that kind of camaraderie. So you mentioned the the culture uh, aspect of the you know imposter syndrome. And I do I, I just want to say that um, looking back, um, and it wasn't just you know me saying that I was the problem. Looking back, my manager was actually excellent. Yeah, and there was a lead that was on the same level as me who was much more experienced. Um, they were great. Looking back, like they did everything you said. They tried to right. engage me. They tried to talk. They tried to, you know, get me motivated by putting me in different situations. I was just so much in my head. I was like, right. I'm supposed to be leading, but I'm failing. I'm dragging the whole team down. Yeah, you know, that I like. As that, like I said, that whole year or that the whole series was just. Um, it was just a, I think I had to have that time in my life. I had to learn how to deal with it. I had to learn what it felt like and then how to, you know, manage, uh, which what I'm, would I'm you very have grateful. Differently? How would you, how would you, have, what would you have done differently? I would have like any, any, I would have talked a lot more. I would have talked okay. to the, all the, uh, all the people I was supposed to be leading. Uh, I, you know, I'd get to know what are we looking at? What, what's your strengths? You know, teach me about yep. the network in this spot, you know, or what's your yep. strength? Teach me about that. And I would have definitely sat with them more and more and more. Um, and, you know, leaned on them, like actually yeah. learn from them. Versus yeah, yeah. And, being like, I need to know the answer if they ask me a question. Yeah. And sometimes a leader doesn't have to know everything, but they just utilize the people around them to make themselves better. Right. So lean on yeah. them for their expertise and, you know, so one of the things I learned. <laughs> One of the things I've always leveraged a lot because I feel like, such as imposter syndrome, there are emotions that are tied to people's strengths and weaknesses. So when you start to talk to people, even on the job, casually about the job, when you when you find out the things they love about their job, they're probably going to be strengths. So you know those are the go-to people when you have questions about specific things. Things people are really worried about or scared about on their job are probably their weaknesses, and you if you know anything about those topics, that's a, another area you can engage that person and try to make them feel more comfortable. So just knowing what people love and hate about their job are yeah. kind of ways where you can kind of interject and kind of um, figure out how you function as a team, right? What people yep. love and not like doing kind of thing. So. Yeah. Yep. Yep. 
No, I love these kind of conversations. I think this is awesome. Uh, it relates to everything we've been talking about from a technical or cybersecurity perspective, but I think it's things that aren't talked about enough. Right? Yeah, um, we get real and real vulnerable. <laughs> I love it, I love it. So I think we're at the top, right? Yep. Um, call it, Scott, you got the Yeah, so, outro. yeah, I'm pretty sure if, if um, I think we'll have a poll that goes up so we get some feedback on the X-Gen and Tonic for anyone that uh, tried it out. Um, I personally, I kind of liked it. The time and the, the cranberry um, went really well uh, together. Um, yeah. But um, for the next live podcast, you'll see yeah, the event come up and you'll see what we drink there. It's going to be the Moscow Malware Mule. Ooh, so nice. prepare yourselves. Um, it, sh it should be a good one as well. Um, I hope everyone enjoyed um, the podcast. We love talking to everybody, friends, colleagues. Um, if you liked what you hear, uh, please check us out on the Apple Podcast, Spotify, or pretty much anywhere you, you kind of get your podcast from and leave a good reviews um, or stars or whatever. It helps other people find the podcast. If you think it's valuable and you think others would benefit from it, that'd be great. Um, also, if you're not aware of uh, our other 30-minute episode a roughly 30 minute episode we do weekly to kind of hit on five breaking news topics and kind of talk from a technical threat hunting or, you know, topics people might need to know about or interesting things. We do that um, as well. Um, tune in for that. And then um, hopefully uh, we see you guys back around next time. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Happy hunting. Take care. Happy. Yeah. Really <laughs> happy hunting. <laughs> Happy hunting. <laughs> Polly, happy hunting. Happy hunting. There you go. <laughs> Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.